Thanks for joining us for the Heritage Bible Church podcast from Lincoln, Nebraska. We desire to be a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify Christ and love people well. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. So most uh, superhero stories or superhero movies that involve like regular citizens becoming superheroes, arriving at superhero status, involve some sort of reveal of the costume, right? Some sort of epic reveal. You're in the Batcave or something like that, right? Or with Tony Stark and you get a glimpse of the super suit and it's probably in this case where it's kind of backlit, right? And it just looks so epic. And someone is always there to explain to you all the benefits of the suit, right? It's bulletproof. It's fire resistant. It's uh, stretchy. For whatever stretchiness is required on the job, it'll do the trick, right? It also has a lot of offensive weapons. You can sling a grappling hook out of it, right? And the whole point of it is that if these dudes... Bruce Wayne, Tony Stark, if these dudes go out on the streets in street clothes, they're toast, right? The bullets start flying. If you don't have the bulletproof suit on, you're, you're done. Batman is over quick. Never becomes a, a comic strip, right? It's over quickly. So in order to be super, they need the super suit. My friends, I would say likewise for us, to carry out the mission that God has given us. We're not vigilantes you know, trying to fight against evil for the cause of good. But we are soldiers in God's army. We are God's people called on mission to carry out a mission for Him and for His glory. I just want to su- suggest to you that we likewise need to suit up. My friends, we likewise need to suit up. With that thought in mind, would you turn with me to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, as you turn, understand that as we look at the book of Acts, we are in the midst of a transition. In fact, uh, Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, also wrote, wrote one of the four Gospels, Luke, the Gospel according to Luke. He also wrote Acts, kind of his second volume. You can see him highlight that in the first few verses of chapter 1. In his first volume, the gospel, it's all about Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the triune God, who came and took upon flesh, as John chapter 1 has has taught us in this past year. The Word, the revelation of God, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, John writes. We saw Him. We were able to uh, hear Him. We were able to touch Him and handle Him, as he says in his first letter. So, Uh, These people were able to see him, and through the written word, you and I are able to see the glory of Christ, how amazing he was. And Jesus truly was amazing, amen? Truly amazing, most astonishing of all of uh, humanity. So Jesus lived the perfect life. He never sinned. He was holy in every way. He was also the embodiment of love and purity and power and authority. Jesus was amazing. He did not deserve to die, not remotely. But he willingly went to the cross and laid his life down. It wasn't actually taken from him. He volunteered it. He laid his life down. He allowed his precious blood to be shed so that you and I could be forgiven. My friends, this is gospel truth that should invigorate your heart and soul. Right? I hope that you're excited about that, about the reality that you can be forgiven this morning. Amen? You can be forgiven and free. Also promised an eternity with God in heaven. So Jesus accomplished this when he paid the price for our sin. God the Father poured out on Jesus his righteous indignation, his wrath against sin instead of us, those of us who actually have committed sin and a lot of it. God poured out his wrath on Jesus. So Jesus took it willingly and exhausted the wrath of God for that. He was laid in a tomb, and he was in the tomb proving without doubt he was dead for parts of three days. And then on the third day, he rose again. Amen? triumphant over sin, over death, over hell, over the grave. He's alive today, my friends. And so Luke has told that story. We're in a bit of a transition because Jesus, after he came out of the tomb, appeared to his men multiple times over a period of 40 days and then discernibly ascended back to heaven. And After that, his work wasn't finished. Rather, as you see at the beginning of the book of Acts, his work is essentially just beginning. 
because Jesus desires to use his men to carry out the news about his life, all of this great news about who he is and what he did for all of us. His men were to carry this news to the end of the world so that everyone would know, right? And so as you open the book of Acts, understand that we're in the middle of that transition. Jesus is about to leave here in Acts chapter 1. Luke's already told us about that at the end of Luke 24. But now he's going to reiterate it here at the beginning of Acts chapter 1 to remind us that Jesus here is still with his disciples, but he's about to leave. And his mission is about to continue. With all of that as background, look down with me at Acts chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. So Jesus is still with them. He's about to ascend. But he's together with his disciples, and it says, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Verse 7, Jesus said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. There's something you need to be focused on. It's not that. So let's just pause here for a moment. You see Jesus gentle redirect here. I don't think Jesus is frustrated with his men. I think this is a normal reaction that these guys, and, and clearly they still don't understand everything there is to know, but this is a normal reaction, for they are excited. They're excited about the fact that Jesus, in his risen state, is meeting with them and talking with them about the kingdom of God, and so they say, is it here? Like, is the kingdom of God fully realized in this moment? And Jesus says, this is not the topic of conversation. He sort of gently redirects them. I think it's fitting that they are excited about it. In fact, um, when they ask the question, they are kind of like us, right? When we are excited about something that's on the horizon, what do we want to know? We want to know when, right? If you're excited about a car coming out, like a new model coming out, or a new computer that you like, a new model's coming out. There's whole Facebook threads devoted to things like this, right? What's the new model going to be like? And you're excited about its arrival. Uh, a few months back, my son, Dawson, he comes up to me one day and he's like, happy birthday, dad. And I was like, what are you talking about? It was like September. My birthday's in February. He goes, happy birthday, dad. Thank you, Dawson. Six months ahead or whatever. What are you talking about? Well, I just thought you should know that on February 23rd, which is my birthday, February 23rd, the new season of The Mandalorian comes out. He's like, I just thought you should have that as your birthday gift. Thank you, Dawson. Appreciate that. <laughs> I've since been told that it's been actually postponed. So he's keeping track of that. Why? Because he's excited about it. He wants to know when. When is this coming out? Like, I can't wait for it. And so these guys, likewise, are excited about the full realization of the kingdom of God. But Jesus is like, this is not the point at this juncture. This is not what you should be focused on. We're not fixated on eschatological timing, but upon apostolic living or ambassadorial living. Which is what he goes on to reiterate in verse 8. So you saw in Luke 24, one of these commission statements. Here he reiterates it again, or Luke records it perhaps in a little different way. Verse 8, but you, Jesus says, will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses. You guys will be my witnesses. We're not thinking about eschatological timing in this moment. Let's think more so about apostolic living. You guys are called to be messengers of the gospel, to be witnesses for Christ. So Jesus is talking to these guys about being emissaries for global gospel expansion. This is what the book of Acts is about. It's about these guys being witnesses. It's about us continuing the witnessing work. You see that so clearly in the text. So question for you this morning, what is a witness? I think we know the answer to this question, but I think it's good to review for a moment. What is a witness? What does that word signify? Well, at least a couple of things. First of all, it signifies a measure of credibility. For a person to be a witness, they need to be credible. Uh, you can see this in the court of law. In fact, the word witness is a judicial term, was a judicial term, still is today, a legal term, someone who would stand in court. 
before a judge and give testimony to something. But they have to be credible. They have to have seen it, right, to be an eyewitness, or they have to have known intimate details about the person or the scenario in view in order to be a credible witness. Now, are these guys credible witnesses? They are, for sure. Uh, These disciples have been with Jesus. They have seen him. They've touched him. They've heard him, right? But they've also been in school with him. Even these last 40 days, you can see in Acts chapter 1 in the lead up to this text, Jesus has met with him on multiple occasions during these 40 days after his resurrection before he ascended to heaven. And he's teaching them about the kingdom of God. So these guys have been in school with Jesus. They are indeed credible witnesses. So it involves, to be a witness, it involves credibility, but it also involves action. It involves doing something. It involves testifying, actually opening one's mouth to testify of the things that they have seen, of the things that they have heard, of the things that they are schooled about. So these guys are indeed credible witnesses who can testify. Thus, they're called apostles. The word apostle gives them this authority because they, these 12, have been chosen, specifically chosen by Christ. You can see that in Acts 1, 2. They have been set apart, chosen by Christ, so they will carry some special authority as ambassadors for Christ. But at a baseline level, they are simply credible witnesses who open their mouth, credible witnesses who testify of the things of God. So this is why at the top of your page, if you're at Acts chapter 1, at the top of your page it says, the Acts of the Apostles. These guys are called to be messengers sent with authority from Christ. By the way, verse 8, you have the outline of the book of Acts. For this is what these guys do. They will go and testify. Uh, If you look down at verse 8 again, you'll notice with me how it's broken down in geographic expansion, how the gospel would explode in Jerusalem. And you can see this in the flow of the book of Acts, that chapters 1 through 7 highlight for us the explosion of the gospel in and around Jerusalem. All the activity is centered there. But then after the um, martyrdom of Stephen in chapter 7, persecution arose for the church, and the gospel was pushed out then to Judea and Samaria. The witnesses are being scattered, right? These guys that are credible, these believers that have seen, have been impacted by Christ, and now filled with the Spirit, they are scattered, and they, they go and preach the gospel in Judea and Samaria. And then, through the missionary activity of the, of the Apostle Paul, beginning in chapter 10 and following, you find the gospel expanding to the world. Global gospel impact. So it happens, my friends. These guys who are called of Christ, chosen of Christ to be his witnesses, it happens. And this is utterly remarkable. My friends, don't miss this for a moment. Don't glaze over this reality. That if you can think of it this way, these 12 hand-picked guys, the majority of whom were fishermen from Galilee 2,000 years ago, were commissioned to spread good news about a Jewish carpenter from Nazareth. And here we are, 2,000 years later, thousands of miles away, singing his name. Amen? That's amazing. That's awesome. That's a wonderful thing to contemplate. Don't just glaze over that. You and I are byproducts of what happens here in Acts chapter 1. That Jesus says, I'm ascending to heaven, but my work's not done. I'm I'm calling you guys to go and take the gospel. Be my emissaries. Be my apostles. Be my witnesses. And you and I know Jesus today because this happened. Amen? Great spot. Great spot for some serious amens. But the question is, how did this happen? This is a really important question to ask. How did this happen on the ground? There are a lot of ways in which you could begin to answer that question, but I think that there is one fundamental reality that sits behind it all, that Acts 1 and 2 emphasize. There's one fundamental reality, and it relates to a command that you see in Acts chapter 1 that's actually repeated from Luke 24. I want to show this to you on the screen, see if you can find it. Luke chapter 24, verses 48 and 49, Jesus says, You are witnesses of these things. 
this Messiah who was predicted to suffer and die for the sins of the world, you are witnesses of these things. And behold, he says, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Now, notice with me Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. He ordered them, Luke is recording, not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. As we think about how this happened, how did this explosion of the gospel happen in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the end of the, earth, of the world, leading all the way to Lincoln, Nebraska today, how did it happen? Well, one fundamental reality that sits behind the whole thing is this first command that Jesus gives to them, and that is to stay. That is to wait. Wait in the city, Jesus says, until something occurs. So question, what are they waiting for? What are they waiting for? You can see it in the language of these texts. But think about it, wrestle with it. What are they waiting for? They're waiting, according to Luke 24, to be clothed with power from on high. If you will, they're waiting to be suited up. They're waiting to be suited up. These guys, my friends, these guys have seen it all. They've been in the school with Jesus. But without the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, without being clothed with power, these guys would not have accomplished this. The gospel would not have exploded in, Ju in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the world. It would not be here in Lincoln, Nebraska today apart from the empowerment of, the enablement of the Holy Spirit of God. It would be like Bruce Wayne without a bat suit, my friends. They needed to be suited up. They needed to be suited up with the Spirit of God. So for 10 days, we're not going to read all of this, but you can see it if you'd like to glance down at your text. For 10 days, they remained together in an upper room. This is what Jesus called them to do to remain together in an upper room in Jerusalem. The text tells us that they, in that time, devoted themselves to prayer. Wonderful thing to do. They devoted themselves to prayer until the day of Pentecost, which is roughly 50 days after Passover. 50 days after the Passover, on that day, the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God came. And it's a big deal. My friends, it's a pivotal moment in human history, pivotal moment in redemptive history. The Spirit of God comes, and it's unmistakable. I'm going to talk about this. Before I go any further, though, I just want to perhaps sharpen our understanding a little bit with regard to the presence here of the Holy Spirit of God in Acts chapter 2. Understand that until this moment, before this moment, the Spirit of God was indeed active. He's always been active in the work of God. Even in Genesis chapter 1, the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. In the Old Testament, he would come upon particular individuals for specific tasks, such as certain kings and prophets and judges. Right? The Spirit of God was active, but what's happening in Acts chapter 2 is new. This is new. The Spirit of God is coming in Acts chapter 2 in a new way. This is the fulfillment, even as you see this language here of promise, the fulfillment of the promise of the Father and also the promise of Jesus. What happens in Acts chapter 2 is new. It's an inauguration of a new era. For up until this time, individual believers were not indwelt with the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God, again, would come upon people for specific or special tasks. But until this time, he did not indwell the hearts and lives of believers. But now he will. Thus, this is pivotal. Now, friends, this is massive, and it has great import or application for you and I. The Spirit of God comes, and it's unmistakable that this is a moment in history that was prophesied and needed to happen for the Spirit's coming 
is accompanied by signs. If you look at Acts chapter 2, and again, we're not going to read it now, but if you look at Acts chapter 2, the Spirit of God's descent is accompanied by signs such as little pockets of fire, images of fire that rested over the top of individual believers there, 120 of them in the upper room. When the Spirit of God fell, these pockets of fire were present. So what's that all about? It's, it's certainly interesting and, and visual, but most likely it has everything to do with a signification of the presence of God. For you remember in the Old Testament, the presence of God is often marked with fire. In fact, he led his people out of Egypt, remember, as a pillar of fire. And now here in this moment at Pentecost, the Spirit of God comes and perhaps is marked in individuals through these pockets of fire that rested on their heads. There is also the presence of a mighty rushing wind. And again, my friends, all of this is speaking to us that this moment is pivotal. It's unmistakable. Something big is happening here. So this mighty rushing wind occurs. And then the third sign that accompanies this moment is that the apostles then begin to preach. And they, they are heard by the people present there. A lot of people, perhaps, that have traveled in from foreign lands, people hear them in their own tongues. And so... The apostles are given this ability in this moment, this supernatural enablement to speak in languages that they don't know, in tongues that they've never studied. And so this is a remarkable moment. God uses that to establish not only clarity with regard to the message for all of those people present, but also to signify this is supernatural. A big thing is happening before our eyes. So the Spirit of God comes to our question. How does it happen? How does God use these 12 guys to turn the world upside down? The answer is right here, my friends, as he tells them to wait. Wait in order to be clothed with power from on high. And as you think about, for example, guys like Peter, the change was profound. Amen? Right? The change was profound. Like 51 days before, what was Peter doing? Yeah, denying. 51 days before, Peter is too fearful to admit that he's a disciple of Jesus to a little girl, a servant girl, around a campfire. And now in Acts chapter 2, if you read this in preparation for this morning, in Acts chapter 2, this brother is going to stand up and preach. Amen. He's going to preach fire. He is bold as a lion all of a sudden, subsequent to seeing the resurrected Lord and subsequent to being filled with the Spirit of God, Peter is here preaching with boldness. Think about the change. Remarkable change. So they are clothed with power. If you will, they are suited up with the Spirit of God. And thus, God uses these men along with the others to advance his gospel to the end of the world. What a blessing this is. God worked through that. Okay? God worked through that. So what's the application for you and I? As we think about this for a moment, what's the application for you and I? You guys were here uh, last week for Vision Sunday, kind of laid out some initiatives that we believe God is calling us to. We're very excited about it. Very excited about what God is doing here in us, cultivating gospel work in us, but also what God will do through us in this neighborhood, in the neighborhoods around 70th and Saltillo, but also as you and I gather and scatter each week, that God would use us to advance the gospel to our sphere of influence, to our neighborhoods, to our coworkers, to our friends, to our family. Very excited about that. So what's the application here? Well, I have another initiative to announce to you this morning. Cool announcement, so pay attention. I have rented out the large upper room at the Graduate Hotel downtown. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to gather together in this large upper room at the Graduate downtown, and we're going to wait in order to be baptized with the Spirit of God, in order to be used of Him in mighty ways. I, some of you guys are shaking your heads. I see a few smiles. 
what's going on? You guys think I'm just messing around? Is that what you think? Think I'm being facetious? Now you're, now you're scared to answer. <laughs> All right. I'm being, I'm being a little facetious. Maybe a lot facetious. But let me clarify for a moment, because I'm going to return to this. Let me clarify. Even as I think we're, what we're about to do is really important for the sake of clarity here, don't mistake what I just said or this image that I'm painting in your mind with regard to an upper room at the graduate. It caused you to think that it wouldn't be a good idea for us to get together as God leads us to get together in groups and just pray. That God would burden our hearts to pray that the Spirit of God would go before us. That he would empower his work in his world today. That's a great idea. That's always a great idea. In fact, I was, uh, I encountered a story, in fact, this week about Charles Spurgeon. That uh, a group of guys came to uh, his church, the Metropolitan Tabernacle, uh, there in London, and met with him before a particular church service. And one of them asked him, Spurgeon, like, what's the secret, as it were, to how God is using this church in such mighty ways? And he said, follow me. And he took those guys downstairs into this basement area, and they walked to this room where he opened the door, and there were 200 men, 200 men, who gathered there before the service to pray that God would work, that God would pour out his spirit in a mighty way that people would be saved and that the gospel would go forward. Spurgeon just pointed at that. This is a good thing, all right? So please hear me well. As you think about what I just laid out with regard to a new initiative, that we would gather in an upper room at the graduate to wait to be baptized by the Spirit. I want to bring some real clarity here. That would be a bad application of Acts chapter 1. I want to help you understand why. That would be a very bad application of Acts chapter 1 because we don't have to go to an upper room somewhere right now and wait to be baptized with the Spirit of God. For in this new age, my friends, in the new covenant inaugurated by, by Christ and here inaugurated by the coming of the Holy Spirit of God, every believer, everyone that is drawn to a place of repentance and faith whereby they are trusting in Christ alone is baptized in that moment of conversion, in that moment of justification, is baptized with the Holy Spirit of God, baptized into the body of Christ and indwelt by him. That's a reality. Amen is right. That's a reality. Now consider what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12. In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, he says, For in one spirit we were all, all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. We have all, those of you who know Jesus, you have been baptized with the Spirit. You have been brought into the body of Christ and indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. I, I say the thing about the graduate because there is a doctrine that can be very confusing and dangerous or destructive for us. It is this notion that we should come apart and get together and wait and pray that God would send the Spirit baptism to us, perhaps a second blessing, if you will, to us. And what it creates, my friends, hear me, what it creates is something, first of all, that the Bible nowhere commands us to do or to be about, but what it creates is this notion that those of us who came to the graduate are like this upper echelon because in a moment, we don't know when, but some sort of subjective moment that happened in the upper room at the graduate, in that moment, we got something of the Spirit that everybody else here doesn't have. It creates a sense in which there are the haves and the have-nots with regard to the Holy Spirit. But what I want to say to you is that the Bible is consistent to say, if you are in Christ, you have all of the Spirit you'll ever get. The question is not whether or not you have the Spirit. The question is, does the Spirit have you? That's the ultimate question this morning. All right, so let me, let me just justify that for you or prove that to you uh, from this text because... What you understand in this is that the Spirit of God is a gift. It's a gift of God. 
we are not instructed to pray for it or to ask for it. And that's the case here in Acts chapter 1. Even in this pivotal moment, what does Jesus say in Acts 1, 4, and 5? He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise. Listen, my friends, you don't make promises of God true by doing something. They just are true. Are you guys with me? They are true. In other words, Jesus is coming back whether or not you pray for it or not. I would encourage you to pray for it, but he's coming. He's not dependent upon your prayers, all right? This is a promise. He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you, look at this, this is promise language, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Notice with me that he does not say, if you wait in a particular way, or if you ask with certain urgency, I may send the Spirit in this new way. That's not what he says. He says, wait, because you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. What does this teach us? It teaches us that the Holy Spirit of God is a gift. It's a gift of God. It's a gift of God to every true believer. So, Again, nowhere in the Bible are we commanded to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit or to be sealed by the Holy Spirit. This is the work of God in us. Amen? It's the work of God in us. Why am I emphasizing this? I'm emphasizing this because I do believe this waiting in Acts chapter 1, as it gives way to Acts chapter 2, does have relevance for us does have relevance for us. Not that some of us would get in a room and wait for an experience of a second baptism or blessing of the Holy Spirit of God, but it does have relevance for all of us, I think, this morning to wait in a unique way. For what was happening here? As these guys waited, what was God affirming in their heart in this time? He was affirming in their hearts their absolute need of him their absolute need of him. So, we've already stated, we have the same spirit that indwelt Peter here. The question I have for you in this moment is, does that spirit have you? Does the Holy Spirit of God have your heart? So, assuming the New Testament commands around the Holy Spirit of God all assume that you have the Spirit of God, these commands operate and really, one of two poles. Lots of different language underneath them, but one of two poles. And just hear me as we move to application for this. Really important for us, I believe. The Bible will say to us, do not, on the one hand, quench the Holy Spirit of God that you have. Friends, do not quench the Holy Spirit of God that you have. But on the flip side, be filled with the Holy Spirit of God that you have. He's with you. He's present in your heart and life. So don't quench him. Rather, yield yourself to him. One of the best places, uh, for me anyway, for my mind, it's not one of the only places, but one of the best places to see this is Galatians chapter 5. You'll see it on the screen for a moment. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, verse 17. We'll look at the text in, verse, in chapter 6 as well. Here Paul says, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit. Yield your heart, your life, your mind, your steps to the Holy Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are a opposed to each other. This is warlike language. It's a battle. Your flesh and your spirit war against each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. What's that last phrase about? Paul here is saying, under the assumption that you are a believer and have the Spirit of God within you, 
He assumes you will want to do what's right. The Spirit of God is drawing your heart towards holiness. You will want to bear the fruits of the Spirit. You will want to follow God. But everything in your sinful flesh, that part of you that's not yet glorified, everything in your sinful flesh will fight against that. So there is a constant, my friends, a perpetual battle in your heart, in your life. It's spirit versus flesh. It's flesh versus spirit. So how, how can we think about this? A lot of ways I thought about applying this, but here's where I landed. And so I just want to encourage you to listen for a few moments and just hear me. For all of us, all of us, myself included, let's all hear this uh, from God. I believe that we quench the Spirit of God when we plow and plant in the wrong fields and when we don't pray. We use these three words as we think about what God has in front of us in 2023. We, as individuals and, and also as a community of faith, quench the Spirit of God when we plow and plant in the wrong fields and when we do not pray. For this internal war is always there. One of the things you see in this text in Galatians chapter 5 is that there's no real neutral setting. You're either walking by the Spirit, and thus you are pressing down the flesh, or you're walking by the flesh, and thus quenching, or suppressing, or muting the presence of the Spirit. No real neutral setting. This is a battle. And so what's the, the urgency? What's the application? The application is, friends, take ownership of the seeds that you sow. Take ownership of the seeds that you sow. Look at that next verse in chapter 6, chapter 6 and verse 8. For the one who sows to his own flesh, how do we sow? How do we sow? It's what we give ourselves to. It's what we orient our lives around. It's what we imbibe on a daily, on a constant basis. These are ways in which we are sowing, sowing seeds. The one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap what? What, my friends? You reap corruption. We see the fruit of that in our lives. What is the fruit of that? The fruit of that is the Spirit of God is quenched, is muted, and we are allowing the flesh to grow, the appetites of the flesh to grow, and the outcomes thereof. On the flip, though, the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life, ultimately eternal life. In the present, though, you will reap Spirit fruit. Same kind of language as Paul continues this logic from chapter 5. You will bear the fruit of the Spirit, such as love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faith, meekness, temperance. These are the manifestations of the Spirit's voice in your life as you take ownership of the seed that you sow. Could I encourage you for a moment? Take ownership, my friends. Think about, I mean, just think about the seeds that you sow. Think about what is influencing your mind and heart. Are you sowing regularly into the field of the flesh? Is that the consistent pattern of your life? Are you orienting your life around various idols that we can give ourselves to? Money and power and being liked, these sorts of things. Are we giving ourselves to lust? Are we giving ourselves to greed? Are we giving ourselves to substances? If so... My friends, if so, we are suppressing, we are muting the Spirit's voice in our life. I think an application here of Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2 is very simple. We need, we need the power of the Holy Spirit working in and through our lives. Amen? Apart from that, apart from that, our influence is going to be anemic. We're going to be much more like that dreaded picture on your phone that shows you that red sign, that red symbol, you know, your battery is low. You forgot to charge that baby, right? And now you got to get across town and you're not sure exactly where you're going and you're typing it into maps hoping that you've got enough juice left, right? Don't run on empty. That's the point. Don't run on empty, my friends. 
Yield yourself to the Spirit of God. So the flip side of sowing into the field of flesh is to yield yourself to the Spirit of God, to imbibe the means of grace, to saturate your mind in the Word of God, to put yourself around good friends, good influences in your life, to come and be a part of corporate gatherings like this whereby you are hearing the Word of God, you're singing songs of praise to our great God. You're putting yourself around the Lord's table just to be reminded regularly on rhythm of the truths of the gospel. These are the means of grace whereby we are allowing the Spirit of God and His voice to grow in us. Yield, my friends, yield to the Spirit of God. Walk by the Spirit of God. He'll do great things in your life. Moreover, He'll do great things through your life. So we quench the Spirit of God when we plow, we plant in the wrong fields, and also when we don't pray. When we don't pray, what is that signifying? What does that signify? You could say, well, it signifies that we're too busy, so we haven't prioritized well. True, probably true. The ultimate thing it signifies, though, is that we're proud. We're proud. We think in some way, kind of like the disciples, if we put ourselves in Acts chapter 1, in some way, we've seen enough. We've been to school. There's no need to wait. We're good. Right? We're good. When we don't pray, when we aren't given to God would you work in me today? And bathing whatever we believe God is calling us to do, bathing that in prayer. Please hear me. I'm not just talking about the so-called sacred. I'm not talking about just praying because you are going to witness to your neighbor. You should do that. I'm talking about how you run your business, how you lead your home, how you interact with your children, how you talk to your neighbors, how you talk to your spouse, I think the, the urgency here is to bathe all of those things in prayer. Developing a constant communion between your heart and God. For the Spirit of God is not, please hear me, and again here, this moment in the graduate hotel, the Spirit of God is not some sort of experience to seek. The Spirit of God is a person to commune with. He's in you. Will you listen to him? Will you yield your life to him? As you do, do not be surprised to encounter seasons of great joy because the Spirit of God is at work in you, reminding you of how great God is, how great his gospel is. Do not be surprised if the Spirit of God will bring to your mind all different sorts of ways in which you can serve God and be a blessing to those around you because the Spirit of God is going to do that in you, reminding you of who Jesus is, reminding you of what Jesus has called you and I to be about. That's what's going to happen in you. He's going to bear spirit fruit in you as you yield to him, as you lean in to him, bathing your life in prayer. So let me encourage you. Walk by the spirit, my friends. Don't quench the spirit by sowing all your seeds into the wrong fields, into the fields of flesh, and by refusing to commune with God in prayer. And just take up this simple task, my friends. Take up this simple task. Perhaps it's just as simple as starting each day with a moment of prayer. Starting each day with a simple confession of, God, I need your grace today. Allow him through his spirit to search your heart for sin to confess that sin to God, pleading with him for his grace, knowing that he will lavish it upon us in abundance. Amen? Here's the deal. Let me just be really clear, really frank. All of us do that. All of us sow into the wrong fields. Every single one of us. We all do. Okay? And I'm right here with you. We all fail. And so praise God for his grace. Praise God for his grace. Because in his grace, God has some beautiful roundup. Amen? 
I don't know if Roundup's still around, but uh, we can get those weeds out. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Because we all sow into those fields. But the urgency for us is to seek to give ourselves wholly to God on a daily basis. God, would you provide grace for me in this? And as I think about my day ahead, God, would you work through me, through your spirit that is in me? Would you work? Would you give me the words to say? Would you give me a right attitude? Would you humble my heart before that person that I struggle with? Would you humble me, help me to prefer them? That'll change your life, my friends. That'll change your life. If you get a bunch of people, a bunch of people that are committed to that, to being yielded to the Spirit of God, God will work. I'm not projecting exactly what he will do. I know he'll work, though. No doubt about it, my friends, he will work. And so as we think about what God would have for us as individuals in this body and as, corporate, as a corporate body seeking to follow God in some big ways, as we think about those things, let's be people of prayer, people that are yielded to the Spirit of God, people that are suited up, my friends, all right, suited up for his glory. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your great grace. You're so good, and we are so thankful for the opportunity you've given us to know you. Thank you for the promise of the Holy Spirit to everyone who believes. I pray that you would, you would cause us to think about the uh, seeds that we sow to help us to yield our hearts, our lives daily to you. God, help us to fellowship with you. And I pray that you would use us. You'd go before us in mighty ways for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together as we close. The testimony is that we need Jesus. And this is what we're going to declare together. What gift of grace is Jesus my Redeemer? There is no more forever now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness and freedom, my steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. To this I owe, my hope is only Jesus, for my life is wholly bound to His. Oh, how strange and divine I can sing, all is mine, yet not I, but through Christ in me. night is dark, but I am not forsaken, for by my side the Savior, He will stay. I labor on in weakness and rejoicing, for in my need His power is displayed. To this I owe, my shepherd will defend me Through the deepest valley he will lead Oh, the night has been won And I shall overcome Yet not I, but through Christ in me
dread, I know I am forgiven. The future sure, the price has been paid. For Jesus bled and suffered for my part, and He was raised to overthrow the grave. To this I owe, my sin has been defeated. Jesus now and ever is my plea. Oh, the chains are released. I can sing, I am free. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. every breath with every breath I long to follow Jesus for he has said that he will bring me home and day by day I know he will renew me until I stand with joy before the to this I owe, my hope is only Jesus. All the glory evermore to Him. When the race is complete, still my lips shall repeat, yet not I, but through Christ. When the race is complete, still my lips shall repeat, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. go leave you with words of John 15. Jesus says, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. No more can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Everyone who abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit for apart from me you can do nothing. So go in his grace and strength this week, clinging to Jesus, our hope. Have a good day, friends.